Well, good morning and welcome to a wintry Sunday morning for those of you present, those of you who are vicariously present, and those of you on the internet. We welcome you to our Father's house and are looking forward to our reunion when whatever is going on is finally over so we can be together again. I want to remind you of something that many of you will have experienced in your past. When you'd walk into the classroom, you'd sit down, and then the teacher would say, all right, put your books away. Today we're having a pop quiz. And you'd hear that genuine groan in the guts of people. Well, we're going to do that today. I'm going to give you a pop quiz. But before you panic, I want you to know it's only six questions, and they're true or false. So let's take a look at these true or false questions and then we'll take a look at the answers together, all right? The first one is this. God the Father and Jesus Christ are equally divine. True or false? You can record it on your phone or whatever you have to scratch with. The second question is, Jesus is a hybrid, partially divine and partially human. True or false? The third is God the Son is uncreated. True or false? Number four, the Holy Spirit is a force. True or false? The Holy Spirit is less divine than the Father and the Son. True or false? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different names, listen carefully, are three different names for one divine person. True or false? Now, let's look real quickly at the answers. To the first question, God the Father and Jesus Christ are equally divine. The correct answer is true. But you need to recognize that had to be stated. The Council of Nicaea in 325 affirmed that the Father and the Son are one of the same divine essence and condemned subordinationism, which teaches that Jesus is inferior to the Father. We're going to spend some time on this one this morning. The second question, Jesus is a hybrid, partially divine and partially human. The answer is false. Apollinarianism, condemned at the Council of Constantinople in, in 381, taught that Jesus is not equally human and divine, but he's one person with one nature. Jesus has a human body and a human soul, but a divine mind. That's false. The next question. God the Son is uncreated. The answer is true. The Council of Nicaea affirmed that the Son is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, and condemned Arianism, which taught that the Son was created by God before time. The next one says that the Holy Spirit is a force. That's false. God the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and the Council of Constantinople affirmed that the Spirit is co-equal to the Father and to the Son, and condemned which taught that the Spirit was a created force or power, not a person of the Trinity. Now, pneumatology, pneumatology, forget it. 
is one who's hostile, hostile to or denies, denies the divinity or the personality of the Holy Spirit. That's still prevalent in our generation, but let's go on to the next one. The Holy Spirit is less divine than the Father and the Son. That's also false. Because, again, subordination, sub, subordinationism ranks Father, Son lower than He, Spirit lower than He. No, they're co-equal, co-eternal of the same essence. The Council of Nicaea is going to produce a creed that speaks exactly to that. And the last question was, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different names for one divine person. The answer is false. That's modalism. The doctrine that the persons of the Trinity represent only three modes or aspects of the divine revelation. They are not distinct and coexisting persons in the divine nature. Now, some of you will recognize that as churches within the United States and elsewhere, they hold to this doctrine that God is one, but he has three different names or personalities depending on which mode he shows up in. I'll leave that for for your discernment. Now, those questions <clears throat> I extracted from a particular research document. And there's another on the state of theology in America. So I have selected some um, results of this nationwide survey to share with you how Americans are thinking. And the first thing I want you to recognize is that 59% of Americans agree that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Now, here at our Father's house, you know full well, we don't stand in that position. 60% of Americans believe that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. And this particular fallacy is gaining ground among young people. Another interesting result is that 47% of the American population agree that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. One in five Americans, that is 20% of the population, say the Holy Spirit can tell them to do something that the Bible forbids. Where do we get this kind of incongruency in our understanding? Additionally, 66% agrees, listen to this, 60% of the population of this country agrees everyone sins a little. Now, not one of us here would argue with that. But note this, the fallacy is they believe that all people are good by nature. That is inherently false. Another 66% of Americans agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, if that's true, Jesus died in vain. If there is any other name given among men under heaven whereby we may be saved, then Jesus died for nothing. And finally, 57% of Americans agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 
Now, this is the one I'm going to spend some time on because of those I selected to share with you, this is the most damaging misconception. And it's important that we get our thinking straight, get it aligned with the revelation of Scripture so that we don't walk around innocently and ignorantly believing things that are basically heresy. So I'm going to talk a little bit about orthodoxy, which is not a word we use a lot around here, but it's been in the, in the history of the church since its inception. Now, some of us will remember that we've had exposure somewhere along the way to something called the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed was written somewhere in the second century, and it basically encapsulated the theology of the Christian church in such a fashion that it could be memorized and held to be true in the hearts of those who couldn't even read. And as the centuries moved on, things began to be more and more um, important that these creeds be reaffirmed because of the heresies that would seep into the church. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest, and I'm going to read it to us because it speaks about Basically, it defines the core Christian beliefs about God, Jesus, the church, salvation, and some other theological stuff. But some of you will recall this. The Apostles' Creed reads, I believe in God, the eternal, almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It goes on to say, he descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, before you start thinking about Catholicism, the word Catholic means universal. So it's all of us for all time, the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, many of you have spoken that stuff. I know some of you are from uh, liturgical churches in your background, so these words are familiar to you, but you need to understand how important they were in, in encapsulating the theology of the early Christian church. And these are core doctrines that are called orthodoxy. Now, unlike the Nicene Creed, which we'll read at the close of this message, which was, came forth in the 4th century, the Apostles' Creed does not explicitly state or say anything about the nature of Jesus' divinity or define the relationship between the members of the Trinity. And that absence of enunciation left room for heresy to creep into the church. And there was a particular heresy that gained a lot of ground in the 4th century, and it was this heresy that caused Constantinople, uh, called uh, Emperor Constantine to call together the First Council of Nicaea because the, the heretical teaching was reverberating throughout the Roman Empire. So to help us understand the Council of uh, Nicaea's result, we have to appreciate the her heresy that it was addressing, the heresy of, of Iranianism. Now, Iranianism was one of the most powerful and tenacious um, heresies introduced into the church. And it hung on well past the Council of Nicaea's decrees after the long debate that, that it uh, took to bring conclusion to the thing. 
Arius was um, a presbyter in Alexandria, part, part of the church. And he was the one who was espousing this issue of Christ being a created being before, before time. Now, the problem with that is it caused great upheaval in the church, particularly in the Eastern Empire. So Constantine had to say, look, you guys are coming together. You're going to get this stuff sorted out because I'm not going to have this mess going on. I've got, a, I've got an empire to rule. So the uh, Aryan system was uh, basically, a, uh, it was a ref refined form of paganism, and it substituted a created demagogue. That is, Jesus, because he was created as not God, he's a demigod, a smaller god. And uh, that eliminated him from being the eternal Logos, one who was never created. But the, the problem, the, the consequence was, it degraded Christianity to a merely relative value. It separated God from the world by an impassable gulf and made real reconciliation and atonement impossible. Now, how, how could that be, you say? Well, one of the things that um, Arianism required was the support of the empire. Because like other things we've seen in recent times, it tried to tie the, the power of the state over ecclesiastical matters in the church. And it, because of that, they associated themselves with the political power. And if they ever lost that, then Arianism would pretty much be defunct. Now, the, the untenable circumstance of calling basically the sun a secondary god who originated before the earth, it was, it was crucial, crucial that this particular heresy be overturned. Otherwise, all of Christendom would have been lost in terms of its message of salvation. Arianism was basically charged with being dualism and polytheism and with destroying the whole doctrine of salvation. For if the Son is a creature, man still remains separated from God, as always. And because no creature can redeem other creatures and unite them with God. If Christ is not divine, then we cannot be partakers of the divine nature, nor can we be called the heirs of God. So there was nothing innocent about this heresy. It was designed to poison the root of Christianity and take away our confidence and hope of our reconciliation to the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to pursue that any farther. There's all kinds of materials available in theological libraries. You can look up all kinds of stuff on the Internet, or if you have the Logos Bible software, you can tear into this and go on and on. But the issue that I want to focus on is this distinction of <clears throat> trying to separate Christ from the Godhead as being co-eternal and co-equal. Okay? Now... When you begin to look at the scriptures about the Messiah, it's important to recognize that the scriptures address him in two different dimensions. The first is his eternal dimension. 
And the other is his incarnate dimension. Remember, he emptied himself of all his godlike powers and took on the form of human flesh. He humbled himself even to the point of the death upon the cross. So when you're, when you're looking at the scripture, are we talking about the incarnate, Christ, the incarnate Christ or are we talking about the eternal Christ? And if you can see that, if you can look through those lenses, you can separate some of the confusion out of this. Let me share just a few of the things that um, gave rise to this Arianism stuff. In Colossians uh, 1.15, the scripture writes that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Listen, the firstborn, all right, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you, if you take that firstborn concept and try to put it into the eternal realm, then you just made him a, a, a created being. But when you're talking about him having an incarnate life, you begin to see that scripture through a different lens. Additionally, in Acts chapter 2, verse 26, on the day in which Peter was uh, preaching his first Pentecostal sermon on the day of Pentecost, he concludes in this fashion, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God hath made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now keep in mind, we're talking about the Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter is addressing the incarnate Christ, not the eternal Christ. Okay, so if you keep this clear in your mind, you can wade through this pretty easily. Because in certain places, Jesus acknowledges that in his incarnate state, he is not equal with the Father because he emptied himself of all his godlike powers. And so he says things like this in John 14. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. Again, the incarnate speaking about the eternal Father. But later on in, in uh, John 17, he's going to say, Father, give me the glory that I had with you before all of this. He's going to be returned to his state. In fact, it's an exalted state as he sits at the right hand of the Father. And again, Jesus speaks in his incarnate state about his limited understanding. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, if, if you lay hold of that, you're seeing that the Son is saying only the Father knows. Now, that's not eternally true. That's incarnate truth. Because in Revelations, we find that John has an angel come to him to tell him what the Son knows that the Father said. So you cannot say that Jesus, the, the resurrected Christ, the eternal God, does not know these things now. We have the very record in Revelation that undermines this particular statement of an incarnate Christ. So when you take a look at that, it becomes less confusing. So where do you go to take a look at this thing called the eternal Christ? the one who was always part of the Godhead and involved in the creation as, the, as they who said, let us make man in our image, collaborated together in a community of persons. Well, the prologue to John, the Gospel of John, is the premier prologue, uh, premier statement about this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. The same was in the 
Same was in the beginning with God. Now, if we go back to in the beginning, what do we find? We said, in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You come back to John chapter 1, <coughs> excuse me, and you find that in the beginning is actually reflected here in what John is saying. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, or God was the Word. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then John goes on to say, having established that eternal point of view, he goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word came and dwelt among us. Now, additionally, we have some testimony of the words of Jesus himself regarding his own divinity. For instance, <clears throat> Jesus is uh, talking to the Pharisees, and uh, he makes a scandalous statement in John chapter 8. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to kill him, and he escaped from them. Now, why would you pick up stones to kill somebody who said they were older than Abraham? There's no basis for murder on that. So even if they misunderstood it to be only I'm older than Abraham, well, then he's just crazy. But what he said was, before Abraham was, I am. And they immediately knew exactly what he was saying when he used the words, I am. For when God came to, to reveal himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he says to him, I am who I am. Because Moses had asked, well, you're sending me to, to your people. Who shall I say sent me? And he said, go to them and say, I am has sent me. So the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, before Abraham was, I am. So he himself is declaring his own, um, his own role as God. <clears throat> now, the thing I want to come to is this. If you believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, then you believe a heresy. Now, before you get too concerned for your eternal salvation, let me help you understand something. The fact that you believe a heresy does not make you a heretic. It just means you're ignorant of the truth. A heretic is one who campaigns against the truth, as Arius did. So as we, as we think about some of the things that are floating around in the American mindset, those Americans come into the church and they bring these heretical ideas with them. And if you don't <coughs> take time to research what it is you're believing, then you don't recognize that you are walking around in half truth. We're supposed to be people of light, not of darkness. We're supposed to be people of the truth because that's who Jesus is. He is the truth. Now, I mentioned before, Arianism did not die out right away <coughs> because 
it affiliated itself with the power of the emperor. So its, it's um, resurgence would happen whenever a new emperor over the empire saw benefit in taking authority <coughs> over the ecclesiastical matters of the church, which was pretty widespread as you begin to read through the history books. Now, what came out of the first council of Nicaea, and understand Arius and his guys were there, they were lobbying for wording, but they got trumped. And as I read to you the Nicaean Creed, you're going to recognize how they, how they put down his, his heretical theology. Here's how the creed reads, and we don't typically read this one very much, but given the context I've taught this morning, this is the result of that um, upheaval that the church fathers had to, had to wrestle with and bring conclusion to for the sake of the gospel. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Now listen to this distinction. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, <coughs> whose kingdom shall have no end. Now listen to this part. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, in reference to I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. Keep in mind, by this point, Constantine was now the emperor. He embraced Christianity as his religion. And from that point forward, you became a Christian by being water baptized. It had nothing to do with being born again. It became the ritual of the church because those who could read political winds decided they'd better be part of the emperor's religion. So that phrase, you shouldn't stumble over it because it has a historical context. We don't typically read the Nicene Creed, but it's important to realize that the church fathers established the orthodoxy for the church for all generations until the coming of Christ. That is the second coming of Christ. Okay? Now, Again, some of you will want to pursue your own education on this. But I call to our attention that it is possible that within your thinking there exists heretical thoughts. That doesn't make you a heretic. It simply makes you ignorant. And that ignorance will forbid you from being able to give a good answer when you're called upon about certain things. So I appeal to you and to us as our Father's house as we move into the future, it will probably be 
an important thing for us to take a look at some of the other heresies that may be floating around in our mind, causing us confusion and a lack of clarity, a lack of commitment to the truth. Now, I have spoken these things out of history. I've spoken these things from the scripture, but speaking them is not enough. We have to have the revelation of the Holy Spirit to enlighten our understanding. Being confronted with the truth should have the result of changing our minds, as in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, and that your mind would be transformed by the renewing of the word. Our minds have to be changed by the truth, not by our American opinions. I submit these to you for your consideration, and I want to ask that God the Holy Spirit would awaken in you the desire to know the truth. Father, to this end, we commend this hour, and I ask that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would attend all who are under the sound of my voice and will be through future downloads. I speak blessing over you, Lord, for the merciful way in which you have intervened through the ages to preserve for us the orthodoxy of the truth, the essence of the Christian faith. And may we, as those who are your representatives, become better equipped to respond to the chaos in the minds of American people and others in this world who share those same heretical thoughts. I pray as we move forward in this series that you, Lord, would open the eyes of our understanding that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is your glorious inheritance in us as we represent you to the nations. I seal this before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Well, it's my privilege this morning to lead us in communion. I trust you have your elements ready wherever it is you're watching from. But I thought, how appropriate that I get to share communion with you after we have read the Apostles' Creed. We have basically declared the gospel and our hope in the gospel. So I want to read it once again as we think about the elements we're holding in our hands. Because it is the testimony through the ages of what this particular memorial represents to us. Remember, it's not just about the fact that you have been saved, your sins have been forgiven. Communion is the celebration of who we are in line with for eternity, from the first ones who put their faith in Christ to those who shall yet, we are part of an ongoing stream that the scripture says will not be able to be numbered. There'll be so many of us who have come to the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So before we partake, I want to read for us again the Apostles' Creed and let us hear it in ways we've not heard it before. Our testimony is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. 
he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. This memorial meal testifies to that orthodoxy, the truth of God, through the ages, now carried by us into future generations. So with that said, I invite you to take the wafer, which represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. He took our scourging rather than having us go through that pain. Then there is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Blood has always been the highlight of any sacrament to God was the sacrifice of blood. From the time God skinned the animals to cover Adam and Eve to the time Jesus shed his blood on the cross, we celebrate his eternal victory. Take and drink. Well, I hope you've been encouraged today. I certainly hope you've learned something, got some cobwebs out of your mind. Until we meet again, go in peace. May God bless each and one of your households.